Uh, well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm John. I'm an intern here at Christ First Church, and it's my privilege to preach the Word of God to you today. Uh, we're going to be studying Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14 together. Uh, it's important to remember that we're not here to listen. Uh, we're not here to listen to me. We're here to listen to the Word of God. Uh, if you're not in the habit, then I'd encourage you to begin the practice of always following along with the preacher in the Bible. Uh, and if you find I'm saying one thing and the Bible saying together, <clears throat> it's no contest. You can go with the Bible. Uh, again, we're uh, considering Romans chapter 6, which starts in verse 12. Uh, it's also on page 943, if you have one of the church Bibles. And if you don't have a personal copy, please take one of the churches home with you. It's a gift from Christ first. Hear now the word of God, Romans 6, starting in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no communion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. For those of you who like to know where sermons are going, uh, my goal today is to persuade you to think differently about your life because of your relation to Christ. And we'll be considering two human conditions, bondage and freedom. And I'll go ahead and warn you now that the first point is going to take much longer, uh, so don't despair when I say point number two. Yeah. <laughs> It is the Spirit who gives us the grace to read, to preach, and to listen to the Word of God. So please join with me in prayer before we begin. Dear Father, we come before you, and we have your Word. I ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I ask that your Spirit would lift the veil from our hearts, that we may understand what it is that your Spirit has said to your church. Uh, Father, please be with me and uh, help me not to say anything that is a misrepresentation of your Word. Um, but if I do, I ask that it would fall in that ears. And if it doesn't, then I ask that, that the people who hear would quickly see that it is an error and that we, the church, would be led into proper doctrine. Um, but Father, I ask if today we do discover anything that is of you, uh, that you would cause us to meditate on it, um, that it would be a process in which we come to set our mind on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at your right hand. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. It was in 1899 that a young man, Joseph, was kicked out of seminary for being too invested in social philosophy. Joseph had had an unusually sad life. His hometown had been as violent as we picture the Wild West. Uh, he had an abusive father, facial scars from about with smallpox, and he walked with a limp after being hit by a car as a boy. Though his mother wanted him to become a priest, Joseph found a social philosophy that he hoped would change the destitute way people lived. After, after his dismissal from seminary, he launched himself into politics, and when joining a protest consistently landed him in jail, uh, he turned to a life of fighting. As he distinguished himself, Joseph would earn the trust of the leader of the social movement. In fact, by the time he was in his mid-40s, Joseph had positioned himself to be the natural successor, not only of the movement he was a part of, but to leadership of his country. So it was that in 1924, Joseph Stalin became the sole leader of the Soviet Union. And of course, we all have the basic idea of how the dictatorship went. Stalin removed all political rivals from power and had most of them assassinated, a habit that would continue until his death in 1953. 
His government took control of farm production in Russia in an attempt to collectivize all the food in the country, a plan which resulted in a famine that killed millions. Stalin allied with Hitler until the Nazis invaded Russia, and even when he wasn't at war, Stalin was always looking to expand his land and power, sending all both dissenters to his labor camps. No one dared oppose him for long. His word was final. It's estimated that by the end of his reign, Stalin was responsible for over 20 million deaths. For reference, that's about the population of Illinois and Indiana combined. Often we're so accustomed to vows to power that we forget what a true dictatorship looks like. And it's this sort of power that I want you to keep in mind as we look back at verse 12. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. But what does that actually mean? Well, we're going to start with a verb and then kind of work our way out. So, reigning is what Saul was doing. It's exercising complete and uncontested power. So, what does it mean for sin to reign in our bodies? Well, we're all familiar with how mankind became sinful, right? God created humanity in a perfect and peaceful world, but it didn't take long for Adam and Eve to decide that they could probably get more pleasure by turning their backs on God and trying to break the world. So they did. They broke the world, they broke the human race, and, as you all know, we are most certainly not happier. What we're all born doing, then, is letting sin reign over our bodies. We're letting that thing that makes us want to break the world have uncontested power over us. What does it make us do? Well, uh, look at the second part of verse 12. Paul says it will make you obey its passions. Well, what does that mean? That usually when we talk to someone's passions, we mean someone's dreams, aspirations, goals of life. But that's not what Paul means. At the time when she's writing, passion refers to an unchecked desire. Obeying sin's passions doesn't mean doing what you've always hoped you could do. It's doing what sin wants you to do. It means wanting to eat too much junk food or lusting after another person, enjoying the process of disliking someone, getting angry for your own sake, wanting to cheat, reveling in disrespect of authority, thriving on gossip, and so on. If you not only have these desires, but act on them, Paul says that you are allowing sin to control you. You're letting sin reign over your mortal body, making you obey its passions. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look with me now at verse 13. It says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. When Paul says members, he's just using a different word for a body part. Uh, the eye and the hand, for instance, are both members of the body. So when Paul says, do not present your members of sin, he means don't present your body. Right, let's look at it again. Do not present your members of sin as instruments for unrighteousness. When you read instruments, what I don't want you to picture is a marching band. Paul's not afraid that you're going to go around playing Darth Vader's theme on the trumpet. An instrument does not have to be a physical instrument. It can be any kind of tool. A sledgehammer is an instrument for destruction. A car is an instrument for travel. A pen is an instrument for writing. So an instrument for unrighteousness is a tool that makes evil happen. Okay. Well, look again, what does Paul mean? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Uh, the more you get to know me, the, the more you'll find that I'm obsessed with words. Uh, and something unfortunate has happened to the English word present. Because now when we use the word present or presentation, uh, we tend to think of an audiovisual demonstration. But that's not an accurate reflection of the word Paul uses. Uh, I want to give you a different way of thinking about the words, so that when you are studying the passage on your own, 
uh, you see this immediate connection. So, how many of you have received a gift? Wow, not many. That was just around Christmas. Okay, well, hopefully the rest of you have seen that you're forced up to imagine. Okay, for those of you who haven't given a gift, which is a shocking minority, uh, what's it usually called when, when we grab a gift? Yeah, a present, right? Okay, so when someone gives you a present, for those of you who have actually got one, uh, do they just show something to you? Well, no, right? They hand it over, don't they? They're effectively saying, this thing that belongs to me, now I'm giving to you so that from this day forward, it belongs to you. And of course, the noun present is direct, uh, yeah, the noun present is directly related to the verb present. Uh, to present something is not merely to show it, it's to hand it over, to give it up, to make it into a present. So, to present your body to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness is to hand over your body, to make it no longer your own, to say, this body that, that belongs to me, I'm giving it to sin, so that from this day forward, it, it belongs to sin. And this is done with the effect that God is not honored. We are broken further, and the world is made worse. Paul is saying to stop this. Stop giving yourselves up to be used as a tool for destruction, as a tool for evil, as a tool for pain. Stop giving your allegiance, your fealty, your loyalty to that which brings destruction and despair. I want you to keep in mind that the book of Romans wasn't written as a work of evangelism. That is, it, it isn't written for unbelievers. Paul was writing a letter to a church. He's writing to Christians. He's saying, church, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And praise be to God, he has something better in mind for us than presenting our bodies to sin. We cut off the sentence. Okay, at verse 12, it continues. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Most of this is pretty straightforward, right? This is just the opposite of what, what Paul was telling us not to do. Okay, you know, don't present yourselves to sin, present yourselves to God. Don't be tools for evil, be tools for righteousness, for all that's good and holy and wholesome and beautiful and worth admiring. But what does Paul mean when he said that we should do this as those who have been brought from death to life? Our understanding of this line depends on the meaning of the word as. I want you to be careful that we not read the passage, present yourselves to God as if you have been brought from death to life. For that would signal to us that a helpful way, perhaps, to think about our relation to God is through the analogy of life and death. But Paul doesn't describe Christians that way. He describes Christians as those who have been brought from death to life. You can look elsewhere at Ephesians uh, chapter 2. He says that we were dead in our trespasses. That is, before you became a Christian, your spirit was dead. But Paul explains at the beginning of Romans 6 uh, that if we have been baptized into Jesus Christ, we've been baptized into his death and into his resurrection from the dead. Uh, and I can start in um, uh, verse 5 here if you just want to read along with me. Uh, if you have your Bible, it's on the same page. Uh, chapter 6, starting verse 5. Paul says, for if we have been united with him, that is Jesus, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he dies, he died to sin once and for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, I can't emphasize how important this is. It has a lesson for both unbelievers and believers. First, if there are any listening who don't consider yourselves Christians, I have something hard to tell you. If you have not died and been raised with Jesus Christ, you have no hope of overthrowing the reign of sin over your life. Do you ever want to cause people pain? Do you ever enjoy disliking others? Do you lust after others? Do you like to gossip? Do you like slander? Do you take pleasure in lying? Do you like to manipulate people? Do you want to cause trouble? Do you crave making life miserable for others? Is there anything else in your life that you consistently find yourself doing that makes our world worse? But I tell you now, you are chained to sin, and you will never be able to escape those chains in your own. Okay. Who here has either read or watched a rendition of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? <laughs> More people than about presents. <laughs> I don't know what's going on at Christmas Day in your house. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, as you probably remember, no one the story, even if it's just the Muppets person. You probably remember there was a grumpy old man, Ebenezer Scrooge, and he's visited by the ghost of his old friend, Jake Marley. Uh, Marley has chains that run hundreds of feet, and he tells Scrooge that every uh, link on the chain uh, was caused by a bad deed that he performed. And, and you might expect me to tell you that the world was something like that. Well, it's, it's not. Okay. In fact, reality is much bleaker. For in Dickens' world, we're born free and can choose whether to take the chains. But in reality, we're born with the chains and unable to escape them on our own. It is only because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man, lived a perfect life, paid the penalty we should have paid for sin, rose from the dead, gave us his righteousness, that we can escape our sins if we believe in him. Jesus took our chains on himself so we wouldn't have to. Only Jesus is too strong to be and to be good. Bind by the bonds of sin. He is incapable of letting sin reign over his body, and so he has broken every link of those shackles of all who believe in him. But here's the catch. All those that defy him, all those that will not let go of the very mantles that bind them, they will suffer the same fate as the chains. And while we are dead in our trespasses, this is what we all do. Remember Stalin, the man who killed 20 million people? He's still considered by many Russians to be one of the best leaders they've ever had. They, they got statues of all over the capital. Without the help of God, we love evil. I tell you now with complete confidence that Jesus Christ will return one day, and we will, uh, sorry, not we, he will put an end to all sin and suffering and pain. We, we sometimes think Jesus will only destroy those really bad people like Stalin, so let me be perfectly clear. It doesn't matter if you're a general in the army against Christ or if you're a foot soldier. 
If you do not belong to the kingdom of God, you have thrown your lot in with the enemy of Jesus, and he cannot be defeated. Do you really want to go to war with him? I don't say this because I don't love you, unbelievers. If I loved you any less, I, I would have said it. If all I cared about was whether you liked me, I would tell him that you was good enough. Uh, that there are tons of ways to God. But it would be a great cruelty for me not to inform you. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. If you're here today and you realize you've aligned yourself with the enemy of Jesus and you want to change that, please come talk to one of the pastors, the, the men who have been up here. Uh, we and the church won't mock you, for we have been in the same place, and we know a love beyond human capacity. That's the lesson for unbelievers. Here's the lesson for believers. And I'll go ahead and warn you, you might not like it either. <laughs> we have been brought from death to life in Christ Jesus. Well, how does that happen? And Christians disagree on the answer, but here are the two main theories, both of which say that God saves us. Both, no, both are Christian theories. And I'll just give you a brief description of each one and the use and illustration of Scripture. Theory number one says that we are spiritually dying and God rescues us. And here's how we can think about the theory. Uh, do you remember when the disciples were in the boat and they saw Jesus walk in the water? And what, what, what does Peter do? He, he asks Jesus to let him walk on water too. And Jesus does. But as Peter's walking him on water, uh, he sees the wind, he gets scared, and starts to sink. So he calls out, Lord, save me. And Jesus saves him from drowning. And some suggest this is how we're made alive in Christ. We're dying, we call out for help, and Jesus saves us. Again, this is theory number one. says we are spiritually dying, and God rescues us. Here's theory number two. says we are spiritually dead, and God resurrects us. So we can visualize this theory by thinking back to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel uh, was brought by the Spirit of God to a valley that might as well have been a graveyard as there are skeletons everywhere. And God asks Ezekiel if these bones can live, to which the prophet offers what, what I think is a very safe response. Uh, he says, oh Lord, uh, you know. So God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones and they'll be knit back together. And what happens? When Ezekiel prophesies, the bones are knit back together with muscle and they grow skin, but the bodies aren't breathing. Then God has Ezekiel prophesy that breath would come back to them. And when he prophesies, God gives them breath, and these formerly dry bones are now living, breathing people. This is what theory number two says. It says, we were completely dead, and by absolutely no virtue of our own, we were brought back from the dead to life by the power of God. You see the difference? Theory number one says we're dying and cling to God who rescues us. Theory number two says that we're dead, and it's not until God resurrects us that we even have the power to cling to him. And we, when we look at Romans 6, 13, it seems pretty clear to me which one has happened. Let's present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And the reason I bring all this up isn't because I, I, I want to stir up controversy, or because I want to have an argument later. I actually uh, much rather not have one of those. Uh, I, I bring it up because it is of the utmost importance that we understand that we are alive for Christ and through Christ and by Christ alone. Look at verse 14. Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. 
which means this, we never have to worry about whether we're doing a good enough job. We don't have to count every time we fail to present our bodies to God as a strike against us, as a reason we might not get to enjoy heaven, as a reason God might cast us aside, because our salvation is not by our own work, it's not by our own will, it's not by our efforts, it's by God alone, and we can rest in that. So please, church, never, ever think that you are called to resist the power of sin merely by your own strength. I can guarantee you from personal experience that if you try to beat out sin on your own, it will not work. As Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, it's fairly common today for people not to like Christianity because they don't like Christians. Always remember that the first thing all Christians believe isn't that we're better than anyone. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's that we're as bad as anyone, but that Jesus Christ is better everyone. So we work with reliance on the Spirit of Christ to do those things that he has called us to do. I said we've talked about bondage and freedom. That was bondage. Now freedom. Okay, don't start to panic. This one's shorter. Sure, Fisher was starting to panic. But it's still, do be praying even, even as I preach, even as we listen. Uh, be praying that the Spirit will lift the veil of our hearts and give us what we need to understand his word. Notice that Paul doesn't just tell us not to present our bodies to sin as tools for evil. He tells us to present ourselves to God as tools for goodness, for righteousness. Now, I realize this analogy might be a bit unnerving. We just got out of our bonds. Why do we want to become tools for something else? Don't we want to be free? Well, of course we do, but there are two different types of freedom. The first is freedom from something that we long for. It's, it's a freedom we long for when we're bondage to sin. We want to be free from brokenness, free from corruption, free from pain. But what then? After our restraints are loose, what can we do? This is where we need the second kind of freedom, the freedom to do something. Sin not only keeps us tethered to misery, it cancels our ability to consistently desire and do good things. Escaping sin isn't living in a vacuum. It isn't dwelling in a neutral zone. It isn't having Jesus-free areas in our life. We are called not only to escape sin, but to escape from sin into the arms of Christ. A lot of Christians talk about salvation as though we're just about whether we're going to heaven. And they look at the idea of growing spiritually and knowing God and His Word better as superfluous, as if it's bonus material. Like, it doesn't really matter. But I guess you can do it if you want to. No! Salvation is in heaven. It's the state in which Christians belong. The state of loving God and longing for Him and chasing after Him. And no, we won't. We will go to heaven, but our joy isn't found in a location. Our joy is found in God. And I'm so pained whenever I see men and women who know God falling in love with the world. And I don't mean you should enjoy things that other people do. It's okay to enjoy sports or school or work or games or books or any of these things. None of them are evil, but neither are they eternal. You will outlive the NFL. You will outlive your GPA, your popularity, your income, your awards, your books, your phones, your favorite TV shows, your wardrobe, and any earthly thing that gives you pleasure. You will outlive it. So please do not make these mortal things the primary object of your love. I've seen too many people take something good and pursue it harder than they pursue God. This is idolatry. Stop falling in love with the world. 
Stop treating small pleasures like they're worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory. Stop using your freedom to live every day like an atheist, except on Sundays. And I don't mean you shouldn't go to work or school. I mean you shouldn't. I don't mean that you shouldn't play or watch sports. I I mean that everything you do should be a means of presenting yourself to God as an instrument for righteousness, and that includes pursuing your interests. <laughs> No doubt God has given you interest for a reason. Uh, think about what your average week looks like. I, I'm serious, let's start thinking about it. Okay. Search out how what you do can be done not to serve yourself, but to serve God. And I'm not saying that, that you never serve God, but I seriously doubt that there is even one among us, especially me, who is presenting themselves to God as an instrument for righteousness as much as we should be. Before we end, I want to clarify a bit more. I often hear Christians say, I'm going to do this for the glory of God about any given action. But what they really do is just give it a big old Christian stamp of approval to their actions. And they usually go something like this. Uh, Dear God, I decided I'm going to date someone. Uh, please bless my relationship. Dear God, I decided to go white water rafting. Please keep me safe. Dear God, I decided I'm going to switch careers. Please make it happen. And add the salary I want. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't ask God to bless us. That's absolutely something we should do. The problem is when Christians confuse asking God for a blessing with presenting themselves to God as instruments of righteousness. The problem is when people who pray those sorts of prayers say, well, I now know that I'm doing this for God's glory because I made that prayer. No! That sort of thinking is not presenting yourself to God as an instrument for righteousness. It's asking God to present himself to you as an instrument for pleasure. It's the exact opposite. If you're not sure whether you do this or not, ask yourself this question, how am I trying to bring God glory through this particular action? And if we don't have an answer, chances are we're often doing it for ourselves. See the light. Christians, I urge you, listen to the wisdom that comes from God. The death Jesus died, he died in sin, and the life he lives, he lives for God, and we have him baptized into his death, into his burial, and into his resurrection. So live, live like one redeemed, live as one in salvation, live as one who has the spirit of Christ living inside them, live as one who has been brought from death to life in Christ Jesus, and why we say, because glory be to God, that is who we are. Dear Father, please be with us. Please give us an overwhelming love for you. Please empower us by your spirit to present our bodies to you as tools, as instruments of righteousness. Uh, please give us the power to resist temptation to sin, to, uh, to stop presenting ourselves to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but show us who you are and let us be consumed by your love. Uh, please don't let us do this as something that we feel obligated to do but don't want to do to make a show of it, but please help us not rely on our power, but on yours, become who you have called us to be. Jesus, thank you for